Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to Three Meditations on Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai by Rev. Peter Yonker. Uh, Tonight's service is a little bit different than usual. Uh, Instead of one sermon, there'll be a series of three meditations, and these three meditations will comprise a visit from the Minor Prophets. Now, if, if you looked ahead in, in, uh, on the web or in your bulletin this morning and, and you saw that you were going to receive a visit from the minor prophets and yet you chose to come here, um, well done you. Because not everybody likes the minor prophets. They're kind of a sharp-tongued group. When you go to the Old Testament, uh, we have our favorite places, right? I and mean, we love the narratives, right? We love all the stories. And we like to look at the laws. And the Psalms, everybody loves the Psalms, right? The Psalms are great and Proverbs, but the Minor Prophets, that's a place where where many of us do not go. Well, tonight we are going to visit with three of the Minor Prophets, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai, because they too speak the word of the Lord, and we will hear what the Lord says to us through them. Let's start with Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. And, And before I read... Uh, just a question, and I think I might have asked this before from this pulpit. There's one other biblical character who most resembles Habakkuk. And I wonder, off the top of your head, before I read it, how many of you know who that biblical character is? And if you, if you don't say it out loud, but, but I'm going to read it and afterwards see if you can see who Habakkuk reminds you of. Let's read. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received... How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict that abounds. Therefore, law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem the righteous in so that justice is perverted. Now the Lord's voice. Look at the nations and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards and fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry cavalry gallops headlong and their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like the desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all the fortified cities by building earthen ramps to capture them. And then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. And now Habakkuk again. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? 
Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You've made people like fish in the sea, like creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and he rejoices, and he's glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? This is the word of the Lord. So the biblical character who most resembles Habakkuk is clearly Job. In that way, Habakkuk is an unusual prophet. Most prophets in Scripture speak the word of the Lord to the people. So they receive a message from the Lord, and the direction of their speech comes from God and goes to the people. And it's talking about God's justice or talking about his will. It's a thus saith the Lord kind of message. But Habakkuk reverses the flow. His speech, his prophecy, tends to go from himself towards God. He speaks words on behalf of the people to God. And I think you heard, they are largely words of lament. Why lament? Well, Habakkuk lived around 610 B.C. And if you know your Israelite history, you'll know that's about 20 years before the Babylonian exile. And at this point in Judah and in Jerusalem, things are a mess. Things are chaotic. There's injustice in Jerusalem. There's immorality. There's enormous conflict. Things are absolute chaos. People are far away from God. And in the middle of this, Habakkuk is trying to be a righteous man. He's trying to live according to God's laws. And he's struggling. It's not working out. So in the first four verses of the book, he cries out to God and he says, Hey God, how about some help here? Things are a mess. I'm trying to be righteous. It's not working out for me. Show yourself. Do something. You read one verse four. That's, that's essentially what Habakkuk is saying. In verses five through 11... God responds. He hears Habakkuk's cry. What's God's answer? You're right, Habakkuk. This is a mess. I am a God of justice. I'm going to bring justice. I have a plan. Here's my plan. I'm going to send the Babylonians and they will utterly destroy everything in Jerusalem. Habakkuk is stunned. He says, what? Lord, you're a God of justice. How can this, this is your plan? to destroy your temple, to destroy your people? How can this be? How can this be a good thing? In what way is this going to make your promises come true? Why are you going to trust this, this people who worships their nets? These people who sacrifice to an idol. The complaint reaches its crescendo in verse 14 where he says, Lord, we've just become like fish in the sea. And the enemy's just putting in his net and picking us up and having his way with us. We're nothing. Habakkuk speaks on behalf of people who believe with all their heart that the Lord is the one who runs this world and who works his purpose out and that he's the one in control. But who in their individual lives are experiencing things that make no sense that they cannot, for the life of them, figure out how this does any good and how this fits 
into any good and providential arrangement. Just like with Job, as you read the rest of Habakkuk, God answers the angry and lamenting prophet. At the beginning of chapter 2, and I didn't read this, starting in chapter 2, verse 2, God responds, and this is literally what he said, well, not literally, but this is a paraphrase of what he says. He says, okay, Habakkuk, sit down. I can see that you're angry. Grab a pen, and I want you to write down what I'm going to say, and I want you to write it in big letters so that everybody will be able to understand what I am saying. Listen here. You're worried about justice? Let me tell you. I am justice. That's the message of almost the whole of chapter 2. I'm against the wicked of this world. I'm against the idolaters. I'm against the people who do violence. I will not let their injustice stand. I will do justice in this world. I am justice. And then chapter 3, I am power. You read chapter 3, it is a spectacular poetic description of the power of Almighty God, a God who shatters the eternal mountains and raises the hills and parts the waters and nothing can stand in his way. I am justice and I am power. Trust me, is what the Lord says to Habakkuk. Do you hear how that's a little bit like Job 2? Remember how Job ends? Job complains, the Lord shows up in power and says, I am the Lord, answer me before I answer you. So Habakkuk does not get an answer as to why God's plan is to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. He does not get an answer as to why God will use this terrible power to do terrible things. He does get any guarantees that he will be safe or that his family will be safe or that things will work out well for him. He just gets an assurance that God will work his purposes out. And that turns out to be enough for Habakkuk. At the end of the book, he has that famous verse where he rests in God at the end of chapter 3. He says this, Though the fig tree will not bud, though there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, though the fields produce no produce, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Our situation is often like Habakkuk's. In the sense that we believe 100% that God is in control of this world. We have confidence in his promises, but day to day there are things that happen that make no sense. And just like Habakkuk, we don't get an answer as to why these things go the way they do. We have the message of Scripture, which is the same as Habakkuk got. I am justice. I am power. I will work these things out. Plus, we get one more thing that Habakkuk didn't get. We get Jesus. Jesus comes to this world and he says, I am justice and I am power and God will work his purposes out. But he does one more thing. He goes with us to the place of confusion, to the place where things make no more sense, to the place where we cry out in pain and tears. And he shares that suffering with us. And then he rises from the grave in power. 
And he shows us that God is power and God is justice, and every bit of that power and justice comes from his steadfast love. And every bit of the steadfast love is turned towards you and me. And that's not enough for us always to figure out why things happen to us the way they do. But it is enough for us to say, though the fig tree will not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields yield no produce, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Let's turn together to the very next book of Scripture for our visit from the next minor prophet, Zephaniah. And I will read from chapter 1, but this time I won't start at the beginning. We'll read verses 10 through 18. And this is Zephaniah bringing a word from the Lord about the day of the Lord. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate and wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, those who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. A cry on the day of the Lord is the cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on earth. This too is the word of the Lord. In the traditional Requiem Mass that is sung in the Catholic Church and in some other traditions too, um, the, the Mass is a very specific liturgical form. Those of you who, musician, who are musicians or liturgists know that. And one of the parts of that traditional Mass that a lot of great composers have wrote, wrote Requia about is the Dies Irae. The Dies Irae. Every Requiem is a Dies Irae, and that literally means the Day of Wrath. And it's a part of a funeral Mass that celebrates the judgment of God on the wicked. Here is a, a little bit of translation of uh, the Latin from the Dies Irae. The day of wrath, that day which will reduce the world to ashes as foretold by David. What terror there will be when the Lord comes to judge all rigorously. When the judge will be seated, all that is hidden will appear and nothing will go unpunished. That's a pretty pointed piece of liturgy. And that's at a funeral. Things have changed. 
I've done a lot of funerals here and at my previous church, and we sit down and we plan music with the family. I promise you, no one has ever chosen a piece of music remotely like that in all my days. And we choose, and I think this is good and right, we choose songs of God's grace and his forgiveness and his firm promises and his resurrection hope. That's what we sing at funerals. We do not sing about the fierce judgment of God that will turn the world to ashes. Which may explain why nobody spends much time with Zephaniah. Because 90% of his book is more or less like what I just read. Fierce judgment. Threats about the day of the Lord. Blood poured out like dust. Ruin, devastation, gloom, and darkness. Zephaniah rubs our modern religious sensibilities in absolutely the wrong direction, which is a sign that maybe we should pay attention. Because this too is the word of the Lord, and there are things to learn. A couple of things we can learn from this fierce prophet. First, books like Zephaniah remind us that God really hates sin. He really, really hates sin. He loves us. He loves you and me. But there's nothing about his love which is that kind of friendship love where you put up with your buddy and all the shenanigans just because you want to stay buddies. That's not how God works. His love is a consuming fire that means to make you holy. Maybe you notice that in this passage, if you're paying close attention, that God's wrath and his judgment is particularly addressed to the sin of greed. Uh, the judgment, says Zephaniah, will start at the fish gate in the new quarter. And that's important that you know a little bit about Jerusalem, because when he says that, what he's saying is it's going to start in the market district. He actually says that specifically in the next verse. This is the financial district of Jerusalem. So it's the modern equivalent of saying, when the judgment starts, it's going to start in Wall Street. It's going to start on all those people who trust in the powers of economics, who entrust in the power of the almighty dollar. It's going to be all those people who think that their silver and gold will save them. They will learn better. That's not a comfortable word for most of us. I have a 401k. How about you? Anything that suggests that God might not put up with our sort of minor league greed and our minor league sins of consumption is laid to waste by these hard words. God is not complacent about our sins and about our greed, and we probably shouldn't be either. Second thing that Zephaniah has to teach us. We need passages like this, and there's good, and there's even grace in passages like this, because they remind us that God will bring a final judgment. And that means that you and I don't have to bring final judgment. We, with our limited perceptions and our limited understandings of what justice really is, do not have to work final justice in this world. And that's good news because we can't do justice very well, we human beings. Even in the simplest places, imagine you're babysitting and 
a couple of the kids are downstairs and, and you hear all of a sudden this ruckus break out and you run downstairs and two brothers are on the floor rolling around pounding each other, which brothers will do. And they're fighting over a toy and it's, it's, it's a full-grown brouhaha and you split them up and when you ask, what happens? One says, he took my toy. He says, no way, I had it first. And the other one says, he hit me first. He said, no way, you hit me first. You've got to do justice in that situation. So you separate them and you try to get them to apologize to each other and shake hands and you try to sort out what happened as best you can. But you know that whatever you do will probably not be complete justice in this situation because you don't know. You don't know what happened. You can't do complete justice in that situation. If you can't do complete justice to two five-year-olds fighting in a basement, how are we human beings going to do perfect justice, complete justice for the deep injustices of this world? How are you going to do justice for that husband and wife that you know who are in that messy divorce? How are you going to judge properly there? How are we going to do final justice in the grand geopolitical problems of our age? How are we going to find out just the right policy to make things right in the Middle East? How will we ever figure out how to bring racial justice in the history of this, this country with all its, its fears and, and all its, its past histories of, of hurt? We have to try... We are called to try to make things right, to transform the world, to do justice as far as we can do it. We are called to do that, but we can only do it so far because of our limited capacities. And I would argue that when we try to do final justice as fallen human beings, when we claim that we can see what justice will be, and then we try to forcefully do it, we will probably cause more problems than we solve. We have the promise and the good news that our God can untie every knot and see all these things. And he will make every crooked thing straight. He will pay every debt and he will do final justice. And when we see the justice that he does through his son Jesus, we will say, Lord, that was wonderful. That was just right. When we see his final justice, we will sing praise to the Lord, righteous and just as the king of the nations, judging the people with equity. We move on to the very next chapter of scripture for our final visit from a minor prophet, and that is the prophet Haggai. I will read Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the second year of King Darius... On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask of them, who of you is left who saw this house, this temple, in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. 
do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. So most prophets sing of justice and and bring a prophecy of the Lord's will and his plans. Um, Not Haggai. Haggai raises his voice in the streets for a building project. Haggai is a prophet of bricks and mortar. Why is that so? Well, Haggai's ministry takes place right after the Babylonian captivity. So we're jumping to the other side of the Babylonian captivity from Habakkuk. And all the people have come back and they're starting to settle in Jerusalem. And in fact, they're getting pretty well settled. Um, If you read the whole book, you'll know, chapter one especially, they've started to build houses and those houses are starting to take shape and they they look pretty good. They have nice kitchens. They got paneled walls and um, everything's starting to look pretty nice, but there's no temple. So Haggai looks around and he says, why should all you people live in paneled houses while the Lord's house lies in ruins? He says that in chapter one. He lights a fire under the people and pretty soon the temple is under construction, which leads to the interesting scene in our passage. So the temple they are building, it's been 70 years since the old temple was burned down. So there's probably a few of the returning people of Judah who were actually alive to see the previous temple. They would have to be about 80 years old to remember it. So there's probably a few of those. So most of the people have never seen the temple, but even the ones who've never seen the old temple knew what it looked like because they would have had stories of it from their fathers and from their grandfathers. The temple of the Lord, if only you could have seen it, it was so beautiful. It was made with cedars of Lebanon, glorious beams. You've never seen anything like them. And everything was covered with gold leaf and carvings, and there were tapestries beautifully constructed. It was wonderful. So every person in Judah could see that temple in his or her mind's eye. But now as this new temple takes place, it's very clear that it will be nothing like the old temple. There are no cedars of Lebanon. It's only the scruffy little pieces of wood that they can find around Jerusalem. There wasn't gold leaf anywhere. They couldn't afford gold leaf. And the weaving was only so-so because the craftsmen of those great weavers was long gone. In every respect, this new temple was a poor reflection of the old one. And the people look at that and some of them start to weep. And they say, this this is two-bit temple. It's just symbolized for them their own weakness and what they lost. They said, this is just a two-bit temple. This is no good temple for a no good people with no power. And they start to weep. But then Haggai comes in and he says, wait a minute now. Who of you saw the temple in its former glory? Does this new temple to you seem like nothing? Does it seem like it's a two-bit temple? Well, let me tell you something. My glory is going to live in that humble little thing. 
My glory is going to be in there. And because my glory is in this place, I will start something here that will shake the world and that will shake the nations. And the glory of this temple will be greater than the one that came before it. Now, I don't know how the people who heard that promise reacted. They must have been pretty incredulous about that. But everything that Haggai says turns out to be true. With the construction of that temple, God did start something that would shake the nations. Because 500 years later, into the temple that followed this one, into the, the, the temple that followed this one, a young couple strolls. They're poor. They're coming to have their child dedicated. All they can afford to give by way of an offering is a dove. And nobody much notices them. They're pretty common people, except for Simeon and Anna, who run up to greet the infant Jesus and greet the Messiah when he comes. And at that moment, the glory of God is in the temple. And it is far greater than any glory that temple has ever seen. The glory of God is in that temple and is greater than anything that has ever dwelt in the holy of holies because God himself has entered the temple in the form of that little boy. Jesus, in the New Testament, becomes the temple, right? He rebuilds the temple in his body. The curtain of the temple is torn in two and Jesus becomes the temple and it is glorious. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, the new temple is us, right? The body of Christ. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ. We are the new temple of God. Now, when you compare this temple to the glory of the previous one, Jesus, don't you feel a little bit like the people in Haggai's time? Jesus, he was so clearly glorious. All those miracles, all those wonderful things he did, that was obviously a glorious temple, but us, the church, we fight, we can't agree on anything. When we do agree on anything, it takes forever to make a decision and move forward. What a two-bit temple this is. But Haggai says to us, and Jesus says to us, and I say to you, do not be afraid. The glory of the Lord is in you, and through you, small though you may be, small though we may be, God will accomplish his purposes. All praise and thanks to him. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.